Hebrews chapter 4. If you're new with us, I want to particularly uh, welcome you to the parks, to our Sunday gathering. Uh, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we are making our way through Hebrews. And uh, we've kind of slowed down to make our way through Hebrews chapter 4. It may seem like a weird chapter to you to slow down in, but hopefully that'll, that'll make sense even more so after uh, today. And we're only going to tackle uh, uh, three verses this morning, Hebrews 11, 12, and 13. All right, stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. Hebrews 4, I'll begin in verse 11. He said, Kyle, we read that one last week. All right, it's going to set up for this week, okay? So just go with me. All right, verse 11. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, that's God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. All right, quick survey. How many of you, particularly verses 12 and 13, you've heard them before? The word of God is living and put your hands up. I want everybody yeah, make sure we're in the Bible belt. All right. Yes. Every, like all of us have heard those verses uh, by and large have heard those verses. I don't think that snuck up on anybody. I mean, I think I've even taught on them here at the park church before. Um, but what has happened as we've journeyed rather slowly through Hebrews chapter four is it's put uh, these very familiar two verses, 12 and 13 in their proper context. Okay. And this happens a lot with verses, right, that they get ripped out of uh, context, particularly verses that are all over mugs or, or shirts, like Jeremiah 29, 11, for example, right? That is ripped out of context and applied and like this very far, like, wait a minute, you know, that's about judgment, like all these things. And this, is, this particular set of verses, um, I wouldn't say has been ripped out of context because you can kind of walk through it and see it. And we're going to do that this morning. Uh, but it's been disjointed from the context, meaning the flow of all of Hebrews and particularly chapter four. And so for those of you who haven't been with us or you slept since last Sunday or the previous Sundays, um, here's the context of Hebrews and particularly Hebrews chapter four. It's a warning. Hebrews chapter four, if you recall, two weeks ago is a warning. And the warning is this. From Psalm 95, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts to it. And then Hebrews 4, we walk through a history lesson because it gives like evidence. Okay, this is what a hard heart looks like. And evidence comes from the Old Testament, something these believers would have been very uh, familiar with, right? They were Jewish Christians, most likely, so they're very familiar with their Old Testament. So they, they, they would have understood the history lesson. We had to rehash it. We kind of had to go through it because they knew their Bibles way better than we know our Bibles. And uh, we talked about how this was the story of the Israelites. The story of the Israelites in that uh, when they came out of Egypt, uh, you know, the Lord parted the Red Sea. They walked across on dry land. They get across Exodus 15, have a worship service, celebrate all that God's done. And then what happens immediately following that? This is the same God who just delivered them through the Red Sea, provides manna, literally food from the sky for them, okay? Leads them by a cloud and fire by night, like is doing everything to lead his people and to be faithful to his people. God's doing for the Israelites. Guess what they do? The same thing we do, by the way, because don't be like those stupid Israelites. This is what we do. They grumble when things don't go their way. They complain. They're like, we don't have food on the seventh day. 
Like, why is life so hard for us? Why are we in the wilderness? Why haven't we reached the promised land yet? And they even make one really powerful statement. They even go, hey, listen, we were better off slaves in Egypt than we are out here. I mean, I think we all even feel just the disrespect of that. Now imagine the God of the universe who delivered them, saved them, says, I'm your God, you're my people. Like, he didn't choose them because they were awesome. He chose them because they were weak and feeble, and he wanted his glory to be known. And then in Numbers, the other history lesson is this, is that they were approaching the promised land. And this is in Numbers 14. And... Uh, they sent 12 spies into the promised land, in the land of Canaan. This is where they were headed from, the, from, from Egypt through the wilderness. And uh, the 12 spies go, they look at the land, and they see it, and they're like, yes, it's exactly as God said it was. It's incredible. However, <laughs> however, in the land are these really tall people. This is, this is, and we look like grasshoppers compared to these really tall people. So listen, we just shouldn't go into that land. Like, let's not mess with that hornet's nest, Okay. Except there were two of them, Joshua and Caleb, who said, no, God's word is true. His promises are always true. He has promised us that land. We need to go. However, this swayed the, the others swayed Moses enough where he said, no. And the Lord said, there is a generation of you, except for Joshua and Caleb, that will not enter into the promised land. That's known as the wilderness generation. And the author of Hebrews here in Hebrews chapter four says, listen, they did not enter the rest that God had for them. Now, why did they not enter into the rest that God had for him, them, the Israelites? Their disobedience. The fact that they did not trust God. So hear me. Here's what I want to be very clear. That unbelief is the root of disobedience. So Israel's, right, in the history lesson that we learned, Israel's disobedience was proof that they didn't trust the God who saved them and redeemed them. All right, what does this have to do with these verses? I'm, I'm going to get there in a second. Paul, in other places, talking about trust, or he uses another word called faith. He says in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, he says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or the word of God itself. So what comes? Like faith, trust comes from hearing the word of God. So therefore, obedience is proof of trust. Okay? So obedience is proof of trust. All over the pages of Hebrews, we are going to see this idea and this con compare and contrast, if you will, between obedience and disobedience. That when we, even as the people of God, as we talked about last week, when we walk in disobedience as evidence of distrust in our hearts, we do not enjoy the rest that God has given and allowed for us to have. Now, primarily, hear me, the rest that God extends to us as New Testament believers is this, is the ultimate rest, the justifying rest in Christ. God has made a way for us to have the ultimate rest in him through Christ and through him alone. Like that's the ultimate rest. And then for believers, here's the beauty of our God, is he invites us into his continual and constant rest. But what gets in the way? What gets in the way? Unbelief. Yeah, unbelief. Thank you, class, right? We don't trust hard hearts. And that's the warning in Hebrews 4. Be careful that your hearts are not hardened to the voice or the word of God. 
Now it makes a little bit more sense why we would have these all familiar verses couched here in Hebrews 4. Because it's like, listen, you want to enter into God's rest? This is how you enter into God's rest. Through his word. And then it uses verses 12 and 13 to describe that word. And I love this about our God. That he doesn't just go, you enter my rest through my word. He goes, no, I want you to understand that. And then I want to take it a step further that you might be able to grasp what my word is. Okay? So hear me for you note takers. Today's text is an argument for why we should be so diligent to enter God's rest by hearing and believing and trusting God's word. Today's text is all about how God's rest is tied to his word. Belief and trust in his word. Because the reality is this, we are all surrounded and bombarded with lies. Bible says even our hearts, our hearts, are deceived and wicked, right? It's not even just lies from within, but lies around us and in culture. This is where in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, it says, be on guard for the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness and the nature of sin is this, that it always brings with it a lie. Always. Believing a lie over God's word is ultimately what sin is and what it looks like. This goes all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve, doesn't it? What was the lie to them? Did God really say? Right, that was the lie in the garden. Did, did God, is God's word really true? And they were confronted with a choice, whether they were going to believe the liar in the lie or what? God's word. They either were going to be in what? Disbelief or faith and trust in God's word. And it's the same thing for us today, Right? That lie is the same lie for you and me and this community of faith. Yeah, it maybe puts on different clothes and maybe a little bit different language or nuance, but it's the same lie. Is God's word really true? Is it really what it says it is? In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, what he's trying to tell this church and us this morning is this. Warning. That same lie is creeping up. That same lie is sitting before your heart and before the community's heart. Is it true? He says, so let me explain to you what the word is. The word is, look at in verse 12. And we're just going to walk through verses 12 and 13. Verse 11 just attached it to the idea of rest. You want rest? You want rest? It's found only through the word of God. For the word of God is living and active. Again, so, so we're fighting familiarity here, folks, right? We've all heard that. We've probably prayed it. We've said it. We've written it down. We've journaled it somewhere. What in the world does it mean for the word of God to be living and active? Here's what it means in this context, that the word of God cannot fail to be effective, okay? The word of God cannot fail to be effective. Now, hear me. The effectiveness of God's word is rooted in its source, and I know when we talk about the word of God, it seems like a, a little bit of like a, a circular argument, right? We use the word of God to prove the word of God, but that's on purpose. That's on purpose when the source of what we're talking about is the God of the universe, 
right? What we believe about the written word of God that we hold in our hands is that he inspired it and wrote it, right? That it's from God. And so we know that it does not fail because it's its source, right? God in his will will never fail to do what it sets out to do. This is what Isaiah 55 in the Old Testament says in, in two verses, particularly verse 10 and 11. It says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the the eater. So shall my word that goes out of my mouth, this is God, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the very thing that God sent out his word to do, let me tell you, it will not and does not Fail. Now, little, like lights should be going off in your head right now, thinking about John chapter one, verse one, right? Talking about Jesus. Jesus being what? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's talking about Jesus being the word of God. And so even here in Isaiah 55, you get this prophetic language of like, hey, when I send out my word to accomplish what he's going to accomplish, he's going to do it exactly as planned and not miss a beat, not miss the target. And we know in Christ that he does. Now, the same thing is also true because it is an uh, illumination of who God is and who Christ is and God's redemptive plan. That this word that we hold that sits on your lap, the same thing happens. Like, do you fully understand? Do we understand what's happening when we turn and open our Bibles? When you read them, when we proclaim God's word from them? I have a feeling this is what Paul had in his mind when he was writing the church in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians 2.13 says this. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, right? Faith comes from hearing, back to Romans 10. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, living and active. He's going, church at Thessalonica, thank you, thank you, thank you for not treating the word of God flippantly, just like, oh, I just hope it gives me the warm and fuzzies. I hope it makes me feel good. I hope it's some flimsy inspiration. No, you treat it for what it is, the word of God, the literal word of God. Now, here's what I love about this verse as well, the end. Because it doesn't just say you just hear it. You just sit under some sermons. You just do it in your devotionals. No, he says, here's the reality. It is at work in you believers. The difference between those who have faith and those who don't have faith is the evidence of obedience, right? Faith is going to work itself out in obedience to the word of God. Here's the deal. You can be around the word of God. You can be before the word of God. You can sit in a really good church. You can hear really good sermons. You can hear podcasts after podcasts, really good preaching, really good teaching. All these things, you read really good books about the word of God, but the word of God not actually be in you as a believer. Does that make sense? By the way, that would mean you're not a believer. Paul's going, listen, the proof of your salvation, the proof of your true faith and trust in Jesus Christ is that that faith is going to work itself out. It's going to be tangible. There's going to be obedience. You obey it because it's not just before you. It's actually in you. Why? Hebrews 4.12. It's living and active. It's living and active. It's doing something. Is it at work in you, Christian? What does that look like? What does the the word of God at, at work in me look like? Are you growing? Are you growing more and more into the image of Christ? 
Galatians 5, right? That's where everybody should turn, right? When asked that question, am I growing? The fruit of the Spirit. Are you growing? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Are you, are you growing in those areas? That's living and active. But my fear is we have many people, people even in this room, you're purely satisfied in your life by being attached to a church that is serious about the Bible. You're okay because you're attached to a, a church that does expository preaching. Who cares? Who cares if we preach the Bible faithfully for a hundred years, yet it has no transforming power in your life? You haven't actually obeyed it to open your heart and your life up to the Spirit's transformative work in you. And it's not living and active to you. It's just dead and optional. That's how you treat it. God help us to not be a community. And like the sons of Eli, this is a picture that always comes to my mind where we just rub up against the things of God and we become so familiar with them that we never take inventory or slow down or stop enough to evaluate, to go, no, is this actually in me? I know we preach like this. I know we say this. I know we have this doctrinal statement. I know all of those things. But is the word of God actually in us, evidenced by obedience, evidenced by radical discipleship, unwavering commitment to Jesus Christ above all else? Because that's what it looks like for the word of God to be in us. Not does it just behavior modify us, right? Let me tell you, just, just worldly religion can do that. You know, even guilt can do that for some extent. Guilt runs out. The living word of God is more than rules and regulations. The word of God is literally the story of the good news of redemption, ultimately through the person and work of Jesus Christ and his mission to make all things new one day. And his invitation to you and me to join in his work. The scriptures are about God. They're about his story, about what he's writing. You see, our approach to the word really matters. Some of you approach the word purely academically, right? What can I learn? What can I learn? What can I learn? And listen, we love learning around here. But there's a runway to which that will not satisfy some of you are approaching the word therapeutically. I need it to, I need it to make me feel better. I, I need something to just, you know, kind of do this or do that or purely emotionally. Listen, we come to the word understanding that our desire above all else is to see and to know the God of the universe. And that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would disclose himself in beauty and power and all his work so that it might, listen, so that might dispel the lies of our own hearts in that around us. That's living and active. Of one of my favorite authors, he says that the word of God is both timeless and timely. It stands over all of time and always will. But it's also for you and me today. Only something that's alive and active is like that. That's the word of God. Let's keep going in the verse. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Again, familiarity. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Not a lot of sword wielding happening nowadays, right? 
So I think a little bit this picture is um, lost, but I still want to keep the word because it's, it's absolutely biblical and it's what the word does. And the second point is this, that the word, the word is a discerning sword. That's what Hebrews 4 is getting at here, meaning it cuts and it discerns. It's not just living inactive, but it is actively doing something. What is it doing? It's cutting and discerning. No human device can penetrate more deeply than the word of God. There is no replacement for the work that the word of God does in and is doing through our lives. I am so thankful that this says that both edges of the sword are sharp, right? We've got to get that there are no dull edges in the word of God, with the word of God. Meaning there is no place that the word of God cannot go in our lives. It brings salvation in one hand and it brings condemnation in the other. Jesus himself will say that the word of God, it divides truth from a lie, truth from deception. It has its effect on us, ultimately bringing us to faith or to condemnation. And let me tell you, these early Christians, because they knew their Old Testament so well, the word sword or a double-edged sword would have caught their attention after the history lesson. Because they would have been like, wait a minute. We know what happened to the Israelites in Numbers 14. Numbers 14, at the end of it, you see the story goes on when God says, listen, you're not going to enter into the promised land. They're like, wait a minute, what do you mean? And they're like, yeah, we are. And so they, like all of us in our human nature, decide to go there themselves. And Moses, who didn't make it to the promised land, gives them this warning. And the Hebrew Christians would have known this warning. This is from Numbers 14, 42 and 43. It says, do not go up, meaning to the promised land. And hear this reason, for the Lord is not among you. This is Moses telling the people like God is not among you. Don't go up there lest you be struck down before your enemies. For the Canaanites are facing you and you shall fall by the sword. That's the piece I wanted you to hear. He's like, there are two people groups up there and you will fall by the sword. Why? Because you have turned your back from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. You hear that? Like Moses is like, don't go there. Don't do it. And you know what happened? Guess what? They went anyway. And they fell by the sword. The sword divided them. The sword could have either brought salvation or condemnation. See, Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 63 says the same thing. He said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, right? Like this is red letters. This is Jesus going, listen, my words, me, are life. There will you'll find rest. What your, your heart is looking for, what you're longing for, what you're aching for is found in the word of God. But he's like, not only is salvation found there, same book of the Bible, John chapter 12, six chapters later, He says this, he says, the one who rejects me, this is Jesus, does not receive my words, right? Disobedience, rejecting, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Dividing, cutting. Peter, when he preaches in the book of Acts, and we walked through Acts not that long ago. Peter, when he's preaching that powerful sermon, at the end of it, what is the language that it used to talk about the people who heard? It says that they were cut to the heart. Sword. Dividing language. God's word is so sharp 
that it cuts to the innermost parts of the man. That's what the middle of verse 12 is talking about. Soul and spirit, right? The, 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 the literal, it goes all the way to the joints and of the marrow. Now, I heard some kind of weird sermons around that stuff. There's really a singular point. The singular point to using those two things is this, that the word of God gets to the core of who we are. Literally to our very bone marrow. There's nothing that escapes it. It penetrates all the way through to who we are. You see, and it also says that the word is discerning. That the word of God discerns and can sift through our very motives versus actions. Not just discerning the action itself, right? But it discerns the motive, the intent, right? Did you hear that? The intentions of our hearts. Like that's, like we can put on a facade, right? But what does the word of God do? It cuts past that. Like how, how many of you know, like intentions and motives are even hard for me to discern in my own heart, right? Like, and I can still be faulty. That's why we need the word of God to give us discernment, not just to our actions, but even the motives and tensions behind our actions. I don't have that kind of clarity. The word of God does through his Holy Spirit. Why? Because point number three, verse 13, that the word exposes every detail. Let's look at it. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. That's the power of the word. That's the power when the spirit illuminates the word of God through Christ in our hearts, that we are exposed. Now, let's be honest, in all of our natures, we don't like to be exposed as people, do we? I mean, seen for who we truly are, right? We like to live our lives and have our lives covered up and curated, managed. I want you to see what I want you to see, right? This is the whole premise of social media, right? Like I, I want you to know what I want you to really believe about me, right? So I'm going to project that. You see, there is also here Genesis language. After Adam and Eve, our first parents, believed the lie, what was the first thing that they realized? Yeah, yeah. We're exposed. And so what did they do? <laughs> they hid. They hid from God. Does that not seem like insanity? The God who created them, like pretty sure they knew, like came from dust, right? Set all this in motion, gave us this beautiful place. We're going to hide from him. We do the same thing. We do the same thing when the spirit exposes us, right? Our nature is to run away from God. And God, what he is beckoning us through his word, by his grace, is that he exposes us, not just to go, see, fraud, see this weakness. Oh, no, no. He exposes us so that we might experience and know his grace because he's a God when we're exposed who covers us. He's a God who covers us in his love in his righteousness and in his holiness. Do not be a fool to think that you can lie or hide from God. You can't. I can't. All of your running, you can't and never will be able to. See, God looks where we can't even look. 
He looks beyond the facade. I mean, this is 1 Samuel 16. The world looks at the outside, but God says, I look at the inside. This is Psalm 139. God, you discern my thoughts. God, you know me better than I know myself. So I come before you so that you might lavish me with your grace and expose those areas so I might be made and shaped more and more into your image. The word exposes every detail. And then finally, the end of this passage. So we're exposed to who? To the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What's that mean? And one day there'll be judgment. And our judge doesn't lay our lives against someone else. The person to your left, the person to your right, your spouse, your mom, your dad. The judge, and Jesus already said this in John 12, the judge lays our lives against his word. And the question is this, as I began, have we trusted the word? Have we trusted in the way in which God has provided ultimate rest for our souls? That the judge stands there with his word and he goes, I have provided a way. My word is a full disclosure of my way provided for you for rest. Not just physical rest, but rest for your soul. Have you believed? Have you trusted in my way? You see, when you are coming to God's word, are you believing and trusting in his way or your own? See, I love that we're here on, on, on Reformation Sunday, right? The great, um, the 95 Theses, Martin Luther nailed to the church door, declaring that we are saved by grace through faith alone. He would declare that we as people, we have sola scriptura, right? We are solely dependent on the word of God, the written word of God as the disclosure of who God is for us. Do we trust that? Do we trust that way that this God who will judge, do we really trust in his way of Christ? Or do we still live our lives going, yeah, I believe that doctrine, but the implementation of that is that I work really hard and I do this and I do that or I don't do this. You see, our anthem as believers is this, is that we stand before the judge guilty as charged, but we stand before the judge covered, not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ. And we enter into the rest through that word. Later in Hebrews, it's gonna put it like this, that the blood of Christ speaks a better word over us. And that better word that it speaks over us is this, is Forgiven, saved, redeemed, made new, made whole. And so this morning, um, this is what the word of God declares. 
You want to know how to fight against unbelief in your heart? Disobedience. You want to know how to fight the unrest and the lies of this world? It is through the living word of God. Through Jesus himself expressed in the word. And when you come to the word, it penetrates. It cuts to your heart. It reveals whether you believe or you trust or you, you, you trust in a lie. And when we come to this word, what's laid before us is a wealth of riches and promises because of who God is. Do you believe that? You see, this is a kind of surgery and healing, I might add, that only the word of God can do. Some, are you, some of you are so scared to come vulnerably before God and into his light. But I hope you would hear this morning his gracious call to you in Jesus. That there's nothing you can hide. There's no distance you can run from his sight. There's no sin you can sin to be without, to be too far from his saving arm. And I hope what you hear this morning is that for those of us who have received grace in Christ, we live our lives as people in and through his word alone. And by his spirit, we're people striving, as verse 11 says, to enter the rest that God has for us. Not because he puts something out there that's hidden, but because we're on a pursuit to know God and to know him alone. And so I want to end by reading Psalm 119.18. And this will be our prayer, and I'll pray for us after this. It says, open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law, out of your word. Let's pray. Father, I have um, been so guilty of striving after so many things apart from you, searching for rest, searching for satisfaction, searching for answers and identity. And Lord, what you have graciously always held before me is yourself through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray for us this morning, God, as we walk even through an all familiar text, God, that our minds and our hearts might be renewed afresh by your word, the living and active word this morning. God, that as we peer in, as we read, as we listen, Lord, that obedience would lead to stirred up affections. It would drive us to the throne of grace where our rest might be found. God, I pray that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit into your word more than we are. God, so that our hearts might be laid bare before you so that our lives might be graciously exposed 
the God who created us and knows us so that we might drop the facades in pretending. God, the the projecting. God, we want to know you and be known by you, oh God. God, it's then and only then that we will find true rest. God, we're weary. Many of us are weary. And so, Lord, I pray that you would graciously bring us to those waters, the living waters, the stream that never runs dry. God, I pray even this week, may there be a renewed pursuit of you through the word. God, your word that is alive and would come alive as we open it. Lord, I pray in this community as we preach, as we teach, as we gather in formation groups and other groups, as we gather around meals and coffee, that your word would come alive to us. It would spur us on to be more like Jesus. Father, I pray for for people in here who are wondering if you even exist, if you care, if you love them. Lord, I pray for people in here whom you, you are perfectly pursuing this morning. And this morning is going to be the day of salvation that they would not harden their hearts to your voice, but would trust in the finished work of your son, the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask that you would continue to go with us as a faith community on this journey to know you. Take us into those spaces and places in our nature we would never go. Press on those spaces in our hearts that we're hiding. Expose us through your word so that we might meet your grace and glorify you. Father, do that this week, I pray, in our schools, our homes, our workplaces, and wherever we find yourselves. Let us radiate full of your spirit, Jesus' fame and glory. I love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.